All right. Well, hello there. Welcome to the Deadly Analysis Podcast. Um, my co-hosts and I are just shiny, happy people tonight. Why, you ask? Because we're going to be discussing the 1980 Stanley Kubrick film, The Shining. Uh, that's right. Tonight, we're going to batten down the hatches. We're going to unlock the door to room 237, and we are going to discuss how the moon landing was faked. That's the entire podcast this evening. Nothing else but how the moon landing was faked. Um, that's, that's really the centerpiece for tonight's, tonight's show. Um, you know, in case you don't know, this is one of the, the, the very, I mean, there's probably 30 conspiracy theories, uh, associated with this movie, coded messages about Native American genocide, the Holocaust, the labyrinth and the Minotaur. Uh, this movie's really about everything except, you know, Jack Torrance devolving into madness at the Overlook Hotel. It's, it's the Alex Jones of horror films, if you will. And I can hear Garrett sharpening his axe right now as I say that, or as describing his film that way. Um, so in case you've been living under a rock, The Shining tells the story of Jack Torrance, played by Jack Nicholson, um, as he becomes the winter caretaker at the isolated uh, Overlook Hotel in Colorado, hoping to essentially cure his writer's block. He settles in along with his wife, Wendy, played by Shelley Duvall, and his son, Danny, played by Danny Lloyd, uh, who's plagued by psychic premonitions. And as Jack's writing goes nowhere and Danny's visions become more disturbing, Jack discovers the hotel's dark secrets and begins to unravel into a homicidal maniac hellbent on terrorizing his own family. So, you know, it's just, just a wonderful family film. Um, so this movie was selected by Garrett, who is a huge Stephen King fan, to the point that, and Garrett, you can correct me if I'm wrong, you actually killed both your wife and kid, like in praise and admiration of this film. Is that correct? Yeah, he's, yeah, he did. Uh, he can't say he did. He can't it, say he did. I can neither confirm nor deny, but I will confirm. Okay. Well, as you can see, we take horror very seriously here at the Deadly Analysis Podcast. Um, so I will start this like I do every other show by just jumping in and asking the most vague general question that can push us into just a bunch of different avenues. Uh, why did you select The Shining, besides the fact that it's one of the most iconic horror films of all time, uh, why did you choose it for this podcast, and what do you like about it so much? Well, I think this film is arguably uh, the midwife to thousands, possibly even tens of thousands of human beings on this planet, because in 1980, when this film came out, pregnant women were in the theaters, and they saw this movie, and it scared them into premature labor. So there's a lot of people who have you know, Stephen King and Stanley Kubrick to thank for having the particular birthday that they have. Um, which is my way of saying, I think, simply just on, on from the point of view of sheer effectiveness and the point of view of how the film made me feel when I first saw it and still manages to make me feel when I see it. This film is just scary as hell. I, uh, there are very few movies that, that, that sort of hit me as, uh, you know, I'm not, I didn't want to say viscerally necessarily because part of it is sort of a cerebral uh, experience as well. But the, 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 the collective process is just uh, I, I am... I am, I am terrified by this film. I think it manages to do something which you know great adaptations often do. Is it, it takes a wonderful idea, which existed in a fantastic form in the original of the novel, and takes it in a completely different direction that also manages to be equally good. I mean, you know, it, it's it's cliche to say that you know the, the, the movie is not as good as the book. This is one of the rare instances where both the book and the movie are simply exemplary. Uh, so that the two uh, uh, works of art sort of uh, synergize with each other, if you will, and sort of heighten my appreciation for each other, even though obviously they diverge in important and significant ways, which I'm sure we will get into uh, when it comes time to get into the weeds on it. Um, 
I think that, uh, you know, I mean, I, I, I as a general rule, I, I'm a mixed fan of Kubrick as it is, but I think this is, this is probably Kubrick's best film. I mean, I know a lot of people can make a case for 2001, but, uh, but uh, for me, this is uh, where I, I would, I would, I would make the case for uh, th that this is, is, is the one. Um, I mean, uh, it, it, it explores many themes. And again, we can delve into them, not the least of which, of course, is, you know, is family, isolation, loneliness, addiction, uh, uh, creativity, uh, a sense of, of, of failure, and sort of existential uh, uh, dread across the board. So uh, again, I'm sure we'll dig into a lot of these, but as a sort of a brief summary overview of why I think this is such an awesome film, that's what I will tee us off with. You know what I really I've noticed about the films that you select is in this is something again we always sort of notice when we talk about each other like it's very obvious my so film selection what bothers me what scares me it's very obvious for Shayra for Jonah for Ben it's it we all sort of have our thing and I noticed with yours <clears throat> one of the like the genre of horror that you tend to go to is like the main the, the not the maniac the, so the sort of devolving mental apparatus of a person like go the it, going to madness right you're one of the other films with session nine. Right, um, I think you chose Bug. Was it you or Jim? Uh, I think you chose Bug. I think, we, I think it was technically Jim, but I, I, if Jim hadn't chosen it, I would have chosen. Yeah, because I remember you talking there. about. I remember you talking a lot in other podcasts about about Bug specifically. Um, so I noticed that that's your sort of mo. I'm curious. I mean, I, I think you sort of answered this, but I mean, would you say that this is that pinnacle film for you? That this one sort of encapsulates uh, in 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 the most let's say horrifying way to you the idea of losing oneself to madness like unbecoming in that sense i'm not sure necessarily about pinnacle i mean uh it definitely was an early one i mean it it, it off the top of my head it predates other films the, yeah. the ones you mentioned um uh of that managed to capture that um but i think you know you're, you're certainly right um one of my biggest fears in life actually is, is alzheimer's disease i think that's something that just absolutely terrifies me um and yeah and uh this, this the the much beloved um uh, science fiction short story flowers for algernon i think is is a horror story across the board in so many ways so yeah, the idea of slowly slipping away, of, of 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 feeling yourself losing yourself, of recognizing it, of desperately wanting to to hold on and to stop and to arrest the the decline, but not being able to do it, that that is a, a particular kind of slow psychological torture. Um, uh, but but it, I, I don't want to reduce my appreciation for The Shining to just that. I mean, that's definitely sure. an element of it. But uh, th there's a lot more going on than, than just the slow descent into madness. Because, I mean, again, I, I suppose I might as well put this on the table now. As, as many people know, uh, probably know, uh, Stephen King actually did not really like this movie very much, precisely because it didn't really capture the slow descent into madness. Well, when you when you read the book, you think that Jack Torrance is the hero. You, you empathize with him. You keep expecting him to save the day. And you very slowly realize that, no, no, he's actually, you know, he's losing himself and he's going to be sort of captured by the hotel. And, you know, as Stephen King put it, the first time you lay his eyes on Jack Nicholson in this film, the first thing that comes to your mind is, that guy's fucking nuts. Um, so I think it is in some ways a fair criticism of the film that it did not manage to sort of re recapture that slow descent into madness, which is much more prominent theme in the book. Um, but, uh, uh, nonetheless, I think that there are still, uh, again, like I say, the film is trying to do something different than the book was. So even though it's understandable to me that King didn't appreciate the adaptation, uh, I, I still think that there's other merits of the film. So. Yeah, I, uh, let's, let me, I'll just jump in and, and sort of echo a lot of what Garrett says, especially about, 
the effect of the film. I've often said that The Shining is the only film that actually scared me. And I'm using that term not in the uh, way that, that you commonly use the term, Noah. Um, you, you commonly talk about uh, how fear is, is a little bit more complex than then, oh, that movie scared the shit out of me, that it leaves a stone in your shoe, blah, blah, you know, I, I won't rehearse some of those uh, those arguments that you made. But this one, when I first watched it, it I could feel the physiological effects of fear taking over. My muscles were tense. I started sweating. I was, I was clenching. And I realized that I was actually afraid while watching this movie, which is a a set of feelings and a set of physiological effects that had never occurred before and have not occurred since. And so in, in that sense, it, 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 you know, sort of echoing Garrett's idea about how this is a film that is expertly made and scared the shit out of people. I was born in 1980, but not, uh, not on, not near the release date of this film. What was the release date? It's, uh, this film was released on, uh, June 13th. So, uh, maybe a little bit later, maybe my mother got to the theater a little bit later. Um, so uh, it didn't uh, it didn't actually scare me out of the womb. Um, but uh, once I watched it later, it certainly scared the hell out of me. Um, and I think a lot of that has to do with Kubrick's direction, right? As this is a perfect use of score. This is a perfect use of tracking shots, um, singles, like almost the entire thing is shot, shot in singles. Um, rather than it's it's almost it's very rare for two people to be in the frame at the same time and that echoes that that cinematically demonstrates these themes of loneliness and these themes of isolation which then coalesce into uh the the dramatic climax that we get um that said i you know for a while this was and and i think it still is my favorite horror movie of all time simply because it is the one film that achieves the effect of fear for me, for me. Um, and so for, in that sense, it still remains my favorite horror movie, but I think that the, the Stephen King criticism, which I was not aware of until you told me about it, Garrett, um, it, that's actually a, a really valid criticism and it actually brings down the movie slightly for me, just how, uh, crazy Jack Nicholson appears as soon as he walks into frame and how he is he is clearly going to be the bad guy from frame one and I do think that that, that reduces some of the suspense, suspensefulness and um, th uh, thrilling nature of the film as we go on uh, as, as the film goes on that said, that's like a minor criticism in a film that I think is absolutely exceptional. What, uh, what I, oh, go ahead, Ben, sorry. Oh, no, um, eh, I was just gonna throw out my general opinion as well. Um, <clears throat> I gotta say, like, I, I really do kind of, like, feel like this, this is a great film, obviously, um, and I, I haven't actually read the book, and I think that's, that's probably for the best, because obviously that they're very, different from what I understand like everyone seems to echo that same opinion um but if the if the main point of the book is supposed to be uh, describing this like long descent into madness like like you guys have described yeah like I, I definitely don't think it really catches here and it's kind of obvious that that's in, in the movie I think that's what they're trying to do but maybe there's just too much other stuff going on for them to really get at that um 
I think it's really cool that there's like multiple storylines sort of going on, kind of like here. And each individual character seems to have their own thing going on. Um, but yeah, I mean, like you guys have said, it, it's from from frame one. It, it, it's very clear that Jack is not a character that that seems to really like his family very much already. Um, in the car, he seems mostly annoyed with him. There's that story about Jack like already having abused his son, and I'm not sure if that's in the book uh, or not, or if this is just more of like a movie, a specifically movie thing. Um, but there are fan theories around this. And like, if you notice in the scene where he's talking to Lloyd, I think he actually mentions that it was three years ago where the incident happened as opposed to five months. And so it kind of like sets him up as this character who is sort of an alcoholic, who has a temper, who doesn't really seem to like his family very much, who is potentially lying about the abuse. Maybe there's more abuse and really it just seems like these ghosts or these apparitions in this house have kind of just like tipped him over the edge where he was already kind of there. Like, you know, you know what I mean? Um, and I really just don't feel like while that could have been the main highlight of the movie for me, and it's a fantastic theme, um, they really just sort of fell short of that. Um, and, you know, again, like they were trying to pack that in, of course, with this story about this obscure kind of like supernatural psychic ability that this child has that also this other man has. And, you know, I guess I'm not, I'm not sure if they planned this out or if Stephen King planned this out when he was writing this book. But of course, that sort of kind of like prequels uh dr sleep which he goes into the i guess that ability a little bit more and kind of like develops that story but yeah i mean it's like there's there's two movies that could potentially be going on here in the shining that are kind of like crammed together and for me neither one gets developed as much as it ought to have been developed now that being said i really do enjoy watching the movie and i think like any 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 movie for me that seems to be set kind of like in a woodsy setting and i'm not sure what it is about this but you know when you have that shot from the very beginning where you see this car in this lonely road going into the woods it's a fantastic shot for a horror film to have and i think it sets up a really good tone for the rest of the movie um the setting really works for this um but yeah i mean there's just there's so much going on here that i feel like it just there's not enough development in any one particular area for it to be like like over the top for me like i, I hear a lot of really high praise from you guys but while I do think this is a fantastic movie, I'm not sure that it really gets there for me. Yeah, I'm super conflicted about this movie because cinematically it's fantastic. Um, Kubrick seems to be really good at space, like making space, filming space, corners, and just, it, um, it's al it almost feels experimental in a lot of ways. And I feel like um, that, that got me more than anything like, so, let me start it this way. I want to make a distinction between the quality of, of the filming versus the fear that it elicited in me. This film didn't scare me at all. It didn't scare me one bit. This is what's very interesting is, is uh, you know, Garrett and Jim, this is, uh, you know, one of the scariest films you've ever seen. And for me, it just didn't, it didn't scare me at all. And I think uh, I mean, for the reasons that we've talked about it through uh, quite a few of our other podcasts, we each have different fear schemas, things, re you know, work on us very differently. Um, this uh, just, I, I, I'm not entirely sure why. I, I literally, this film has the least amount of notes I've ever taken on any film. I, 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 it's hard for me to peg why this movie just didn't do it for me at all. I, I actually thought Session 9 was scarier than this movie. Um, and I, I actually didn't like Session 9 for a while, but I, I this seemed to, to do it less for me than, uh, than Session 9. So I want to make a distinction between, you know, the fear of, of, maybe devolving into madness, um, the, even the fear of the setting being isolated. We've had quite a few films in which there's an isolated setting. 
um, and, and how that plays into the idea of death and horror and, and you know, re reaching a limit or reaching the end and not being able to really call for help or do anything. So there's sort of that um, like choking fear that no one's there to help, you're isolated, that sort of thing. Uh, but this, I don't know why this film didn't have that oomph. It didn't have that, that, um, that thing for me. That I, I think part of it is what you guys have been echoing, which was King's criticism, is that there was no real clear evolution into madness in the film. I have not read the book. I kind of do wish I would have read the actual book, but um, just because I know there's these large distinctions that I may have missed. But I felt like the descent into madness was fairly abrupt. And um, I think that took away a little bit of maybe what would have scared me. Um, so I, I'm, I actually kind of, as you guys talk about what scared you the most, I kind of want to, I, I want to bounce that off me and think why that didn't scare me. Um, I kind of, I know this is going to sound terrible. I was kind of bored in this movie. I know that's like, I know, I know that if we get any dislikes in the video, it's right here. Time tag it. Um, I think here's what I think part of the problem is this movie suffers from what I call uh, the scariest horror movie of all time syndrome, where if you Google the, the Shining, it says, you know, you can read on multiple websites, the scariest movie ever made. It was the same problem for The Exorcist. Um, and I hear all of this and I saw this movie once when I was a kid and I don't remember it. I, I remember watching some of it or all of it. I, I don't have, I, I remember certain scenes, like, like very vivid scenes. Maybe that's one of the things we'll get into. I think that there's imagery that sticks with you in this movie, but that was kind of it for me. Like there's certain, like you could YouTubeize certain clips and get a really good like compilation of scary scenes, but putting it all together was was the thing that just didn't work for me. But anyway, um, yeah, I, uh, I had a lot of conflicting emotions. I love the cinematic stuff, but I just felt like the fear element was lacking for me. Um, yeah, and I'm not entirely sure why. Maybe it's one of the things we'll explore. But I do, I do want to, you know, kind of long-winded way around saying I respect your views and I respect this movie because it is considered a classic. I hate to shit on nostalgia. I don't like to be that guy. But I kind of do want to be that guy for this movie because I'm trying to figure out what exactly it was that scared you guys so much about this movie. So for fear of playing into your point about atomizing the film or YouTubeizing it, I, I just got to ask you. So try to remember, throwback, the first time you saw the movie. Yes. Danny Torrance is riding on his tricycle through the halls of the hotel and he goes around the corner and the two girls are standing there. Tell me you did not shit your fucking pants when you saw that. <laughs> I, I have no recollection of being really scared by that. I, I, you know, and when I saw it a second time, I knew that it was coming. So that kind of, I mean, didn't really do much for me the second time watching it, but I don't, I don't have any memory of that really scaring me as a child. Um, Hello, Danny. Yeah. Come play with us. Okay. When you Whatever. do that, when you do that, the fear actually is. Yeah, I'm feeling it now. So now um, you've, yeah. That's ever and ever and ever. That's like to the marrow right there. I feel that in my spinal <laughs> fluid every time. That's. It's so yeah. interesting. I it's like it's like Event Horizon for me, guys. Like I that's I, when we did our Event Horizon podcast. I this is exactly what happened. I there was a couple scenes. I'd be like, this scene didn't fucking scare you. I wanted to like strangle people behind my camera, and they're like, it. I, what are you talking about, Noah? And I think that's the same. It's it's just a very different people with different fear schemas. Sure. Very interesting. 
fear palettes as we've been uh, fear palettes yes this is my fear palette <laughs> two little girls in british accents and uh, a british bartender a racist british bartender and i'm pissed off i'm scared of my mind now i see i i'm i'm okay with the fact that this film didn't scare you like that doesn't it doesn't scare me now I rewatched it today and it was like, all right, cool. I've seen The Shining again and, you know, just sort of refresh my memory so that I could talk intelligently about it, um, hopefully intelligently. And uh, so I, it doesn't bother me that it doesn't scare you because it doesn't scare me now. What I can appreciate about this film is its technical, its, its technical craft, the themes that it's playing with. And some of those themes, I think, are in and of themselves uh, horrifying. Um, there are themes not, I, I, let's just sort of take them apart one by one. Sure. Uh, the first is domestic abuse and domestic violence and how uh, the Shelley Duvall character and Shelley Duvall, the actress herself, had a, an, an incredibly difficult time working on this film. We should probably uh, spend some time talking about the ethics of whether or not how she was treated on this set or is, is whether or not that's actually ethically defensible. But that said, the, the, the themes of domestic violence within this film are incredibly poignant and have a lot to say about today because that character, Wendy Torrance, um, excuses her, excuses Jack's actions in the beginning of the film. And in that sense, she has become um, gaslighted in that relationship. And that's an incredibly fearful uh, theme that this film is playing with and, and exposing one of those, uh, one of the elements of domestic abuse and domestic violence is how it inculcates uh, violence as normal within the relationship and that's something that's that's all over this movie in a very scary and uh and 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 difficult difficult to encounter way go ahead I'm jump in here real quick because i yeah. want to throw in and, and there's a small anecdote here which which builds on that so apparently stephen king reported that the the uh the inspiration for the shining came when you know he was working um you know in his office and he you know back in the days of typewriters he was typing stuff out and he, he stepped outside for a short while and came back and found one of his sons had taken his papers spread them out on the ground and poured ink all over them and just ruined like the whole his, the whole day's worth of work and writing and for a split second stephen king thought to himself i'm going to kill him and the second after he had that thought he was like Oh my God! Where did that come from? You know, there's, he 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 tapped into something just you know that terrified the hell out of himself. The impulse for a father to kill his own child, and it was exploring that impulse that was was the the inspiration for 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 the for the novel. Whatever was taking hold of him probably lived in the weak and the wounded. You know what I mean? It's an inside joke. Session nine. Sorry. Nice uh, session nine callback. But the, yeah, I mean, domestic violence is certainly a theme running through here, and that it makes a lot of sense that that's uh, uh, Stephen King's inspiration for the story. And uh, I, I can imagine how that. It, I also thought it was. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, Garrett. This is sort of a metaphor for alcoholism as well. It was for King. I mean, again, King had uh, been struggling with his own alcoholism and continued to 
do so for some time after this novel. Um, and he had his, his family had a history of, of addiction problems and, you know, Jack Torrance's character. And again, that's much more explicit in the novel, um, uh, the role that alcoholism is playing. But, uh, you know, you know the, there is the fantastic scene in which, you know, uh, Jack Torrance falls off the wagon in a purely psychic fashion, or I suppose depending on how literally you take the ghosts to be, whether or not they can manifest actual alcohol, maybe that's debatable. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the conversations that we should have as we talk about the plot of this film is who are the characters? And for me, it's uh, there are five characters. It's Wendy, Jack, Danny, uh, O'Halloran, and the the hotel um, as an actual character that manifests itself in different ways, um, usually British speaking, uh, British accented characters, um, and ones that can serve alcohol and let you out of rooms. Can I ask what what supposedly this this house is like? What the story is there? I I, I know they they talk about it a little bit in the movie, and so I I hate to do this, but I don't know if there's additional context that can be brought up from the novel. But is it this idea that it was essentially built on top of an Indian burial ground? Like, is that kind of like the impetus for the house to have like the supernatural power that it does to either manifest or like trap spirits or or whatever the hell is going on here? Is that kind of the explanation? There's a lot of different theories about this. I, I mean, I, that's probably the most sort of straightforward, the most literal one that's you know, expressly stated, the fact that it's built on an Indian burial ground. King explores this in some more depth in the sequel in Doctor Sleep, but uh, you know maybe it's not fair game necessarily to sort of to to, to peel into that because that's arguably is retconning and going back. Um, but suffice to say, I think that uh, it's uh, that's in there sort of as as a fig leaf to people who demand some sort of story, some sort of explanation. But uh, the 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 real reasons are deeper, more profound, uh, and and less you know rationalizable, if you will. Right, which I think makes the film more interesting because we're never really given a, I mean, I'm sort of contrasting The Shining with Poltergeist where uh, at the end they realized that the house was buried on an Indian burial ground and Craig T. Nelson has this moment, you didn't even bother to move the bodies, as if moving the bodies would then get rid of the ghosts, um, which is just, it, it's kind of... It's stupid and it kind of plays into uh, Native American stereotypes that I would prefer that this film didn't didn't play with um, and and plays with Native American I think Poltergeist certainly plays with those stereotypes in in much more explicit and um, unfortunate ways. In this case, I like the fact that the only that one of the few plot contrivance, explanations that we get for why uh jack feels deja vu every time he walks the first time he walks into the hotel is the final shot where there's a photo of jack toasting new year's 1929 whatever uh a new year's um a good deal in the path i i believe it's 1929 could be mistaken on that um but the point is is that that final enigmatic shot is the only real plot contrivance explanation for why the things we just saw happen happened. And I'm okay with that. And I, I think that this film is dealing with much, uh, it's much more visceral of an experience without under 
without understanding exactly why this is happening. And you didn't even bother to move the bodies. Uh, stupid scene uh, sort of tagged on to the end. Um, I would say yeah, that I, I definitely agree with that, right? Oh, sorry. I, I, I agree with that. Um, you know, whenever we think about this movie, and it's not the first thing that I thought of, especially the first time that I saw this, maybe I didn't have the context of the horror genre. Um, but whenever I'm watching this now, I'm kind of contrasting it with things maybe a little bit unfairly, like The Haunting of Hill House or Amityville Horror or American Horror Story Hotel or, you know, shit like that that deals with these buildings or hotels with some sort of like supernatural history. And that becomes the entire crux of the story. Um, while I do criticize this movie for trying to jam too many things into two and a half hours, uh, I do think that it's good that that's more of just kind of like the background and not necessarily the, the meat on the bone, for instance, right? You know, there's there's definitely another story going on here that's more interesting than the history of the house itself. It's just, it seems just like um, a plot device, if anything else, I would say. Maybe that's um, misinformed or a misinterpretation, but it, that's the way it seems to me. I think it's a much more dynamic character than that. Um, I, I, as opposed to a plot device, I think that the house has agency, or the, the hotel rather, has agency within this film um, in ways that we don't often see in other horror movies. Um, this is a, a place that actually affects the plot because it wants something, it wants, I, I assume it wants Jack to be returned unto it. And um, it's craving more in the way of like a blood, not a blood sacrifice, but the, it's it's craving, um, it's craving Jack's returned presence to it. And so that's, I, that's why I see it as more than a plot device because I think it's an actual character within the film. Um, any interpretation of this film that I come to that that sort of explains and ties together all of the elements has to include the the house as a character with agency or the hotel rather as a character it's, is i'm trying to think of other films that ha that we've done in this podcast that have that the only the only one that comes to mind is event horizon the spaceship has it has a kind of agency that becomes in a, its own character once that sort of blood letting back in into itself i think that's session, session nine i mean i'm not sure i would go as far as to say it has the 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 uh, insane asylum in session nine has agency, but it's definitely a character unto itself. Yeah, in our chat, we have uh, quite a few people who uh, who liked the book but did not like the movie. Just thought I'd throw that out there. It's, it's yeah, I uh, I'm I'm tempted to. I've read the book as well, and as I was uh, thinking about the film and the book and how they they intersect and don't intersect. I, I've come to the, I've, I've come to the, the sort of rationalization that there are two pieces of art called the shining. One is a book, one is a film. They're both good, but they have very little to do with each other. Um, that, that there's almost a, uh, a Venn diagram that's, that's meets at the character names and a couple of the events. And that's about it. So I can respect the book. I like the book. Okay. I like the film a lot. Um, and, but I don't try and square those two as the book and the film as being either in opposition or uh, sort of comparing the book to the movie about in, in arguments about faithfulness or whatnot. Yeah, I mean, it is worth mentioning that they did remake The Shining in 1997 with Mick Garris directing, and it 
you know, it, it wasn't very good. It was much more faithful to the book. Now, arguably, you, I mean, again, there's lots of reasons why it wasn't quite so good. You know, the budget was smaller. Again, Mick Garris, while a talented enough director, is certainly no Stanley Kubrick. Uh, it was made for television, so obviously that puts lots of uh, limitations on it as well. Uh, but at the same time, because it was made for television, they had more time and were able to explore things rather than in a feature film length. Uh, so, I mean, there, well, the, the remake is not without its merits, and no doubt if you were to do it right with an incredibly talented director and a strong budget and et cetera, you, you could do a, a more faithful adaptation to the book that was better than Garris's version. It still wouldn't, I, I don't think it would be as good as, as, as Kubrick's version. You know, uh, King's uh, novel version is fantastic for the novel format, but if you tried to do a you know, point for point uh, uh, adaptation into film, it just would not translate as well. Whereas Kubrick's version exists as a film in 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 rarest of all forms it's uh, it, it works as a film and and so you know in, in many ways each of those these two works of art exemplify how to write a horror novel and how to make a horror movie um and it shows the differences between the two mediums i i as you guys are talking as you guys are talking i'm thinking you know one of the things i did like about the film was the the just the vast enigmatic quality of uh just the entirety of the film like I, I think this is one of those films where maybe the setting was more horrifying than the intention of trying to develop a main character and watch his sort of de-evolution into into madness and you know killing his family. I that that was that was the <laughs> that was the least interesting part of this movie. Um, the imagery in this movie seemed to be um, what was the most interesting. The exploration of the actual physical hotel was like scarier than anything else in the film to me. Can't think of many other films. I mean, maybe that's the point. Maybe that's part of the point. Um, but I can't think of many other films that that in, in which just the setting seems more eerie than maybe the intent of the entirety of the movie. I still feel a little wigged out anytime I am, you know, in, in, a, in a house or a hotel that's you know, buried deep in snow, you know, and, and, and in deep winter. I Thankfully, I live in a part of California where that's not really uh, something that happens all that often. But I, I do go to Tahoe on occasion. And when I'm up there, there's part of me that's a little on edge. And, and you know, again, I... Noah, like you, I uh, I love Event Horizon, but I've never been locked in a locked in a spaceship, and I don't plan <laughs> to ever be locked in a spaceship. So there's a certain amount of relatability to the experience of of, of the kind of isolation in a when you're snowed in that you don't get uh, out of Event Horizon. And also, again, I, to, I maybe you guys have been familiar with it before, but I I, I had never heard of the concept of cabin fever before I saw mm -hmm. this movie. You know, and and that it, that now seems like such an iconic and you know, almost you know, elemental part of human psychology that when you deprive us of social uh, uh, social contact, when you isolate us, people just go insane. Uh, uh, that's a, it's a very sort of, it's primitive, it's powerful, and it's it's tapping into something that, you know, I mean, I'm not necessarily saying I feel it in myself, but I'm, you know, I have enough self-awareness to think that if you isolated me for a long enough time, yeah, I'm pretty sure I would go insane too. Yeah, this feeling of loneliness and how loneliness affects us and drives us to the point where um, we become stultified and angry, stultified in our art and and angry at the the few people around us. This this sort of idea that uh, the familiarity breeds contempt. Um, that's kind of what I. That's what I get out of this movie and get out of the. Uh, 
the journey that uh, the Jack Torrance goes through. And it's only over the course of like what two months before he uh, he starts trying to hack up his his family. Uh, that's the idea that just that 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 short amount of time might be what what causes what uh, uh, causes a psychological break is is really interesting to me. And could be uh, could be, is the uh, one of the themes that really strikes me about this movie. Go ahead now. I was just going to say one of the things that sort of caught me with Garrett's comment is I, I have the same issue with hospital hallways um, and I it, it may be different from the isolation component, but I don't know, maybe the sterility, just the the the, the labyrinth and length of it, it. There's almost an unnatural component to being in a hotel with no people and being in a very sterile um, hospital environment. There's a couple horror films where this wigged me out. O oddly enough, one of them was one of the Halloween films, which being in a hospital setting is the le the last thing you're, you're supposed to be scared of Michael Myers. But uh, I think it was The Curse of Michael Myers, the one with Paul Rudd, which I'm not even going to get into that movie. But the, there's a there's a particular uh, set of sequences in a, in a hospital where I was actually kind of more wigged out by the setting than I was um, the antagonist of the movie. So anyway, I just thought I'd throw that out there. It's, I'm thinking out loud, I think it's very interesting how setting informs some of the, the sort of primary elements of horror anyway. Well, that's what I uh, find about Garrett's uh, choices. It's always, there's always a setting, yeah, a setting element. I mean, I found that to be uh, the most um, effective part of session nine, or not effective, but the most prevalent part of session nine, that those weren't necessarily about character development as much as it was about a really creepy place. And and there were characters there too. Uh, tone is tone is so absolutely essential and for me for a horror film actually working. You know, it, it, there has to be a you know, sort of a constant cosmic background radiation that keeps you unnerved between the plot points uh, or between the you know the scares or whatever. Uh, because otherwise, you know, it, it's just a, a series of, of, of events which may or may not be scary in themselves, but you know aren't going to amount to something greater than themselves. Now, most people don't know this, but um, since we've monetized Deadly Analysis, we have been saving up the ad revenue to stay at the Stanley Hotel, all of us, one day. So we'll see if Garrett snaps. I'm gonna, We're going to vlog Garrett snapping and killing all of us. That would be the ultimate finality of this podcast. It would be a terrible way to go, but it would be iconic, you know, so. Right. Uh, then we'd be like the podcasters in that stupid Halloween reboot. <laughs> uh, the, the men who go insane. Okay, so um, this might be shifting gears a little bit, but I, I want to push it in a direction because there, there's been a story about this uh, about this movie, which um, I heard. Um, uh, uh, I, who was it? The director of Shawshank Redemption, Frank Darabont. Yeah, Frank Darabont. Okay, if I recall correctly, Frank Darabont told this story on Inside the Actors Studio. Uh, uh, he this is a story that he allegedly heard from Stephen King. He said uh, he said that Stephen King. Um, uh, when when this when Shining was being made, he got a phone call from Stanley Kubrick. Now, now uh, King was a successful author at the time, but he was not yet Stephen King. He was not yet the icon that he he would become. So he's sort of a little starstruck that, that that Stanley Kubrick in the middle of the production is calling him up. And so he you know he sort of nervously takes the phone. He's like, "Hello," and 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 Stanley's like, uh, "Hey, Stephen Stanley. Uh, look, I got a quick question for you. Do you believe in God?" Stephen King's like, "Uh, yeah, yes, yes, I do." Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. That's what I thought. Thanks a lot. Talk to you later. Bye. And hangs up. Now, 
Apparently, so assuming the story is true, assuming I haven't butchered it or misremembered it or, you know, it wasn't corroded some way. If this, this story is true. This means that in the middle of producing The Shining, Stanley Kubrick thought it was important enough to halt production or at least take you know, a few minutes out of his day to call up the author of the novel to find out whether or not he believed in God. This is, now Stanley Kubrick is, if I recall, actually is an atheist himself. So I am just dying to know what you guys think about this. What, what was what was going through Kubrick's head when he decided he needed to know whether or not Stephen King believed in God before he could continue on with the making of the film? Wow. Wow. There, that's interesting. Um, I I mean, let's let's also put this in context. Stanley Kubrick is weird as fuck. So let's just, I mean, that's not outside the norm for like the modern day Howard Hughes, uh, or relatively modern day Howard Hughes. I, yeah, so I, I don't know though, like, would it? Well, think of the ending, right? Like, instead of yeah. assimilation into a, a sort of ever present, I am. I, yeah, there there is kind of a God complex going on here. And I do think that you have to believe in something supernatural in order to believe that ghosts are real. And this film certainly takes it as a, a given that ghosts are real. So um, in that sense, I can imagine Kubrick having to know whether or not Stephen King has a a phenomenological understanding of the world in order to to function that makes that makes some degree of sense to me um but i i i can't i can't imagine that stanley kubrick goes into this movie without knowing the answer to that question in one way or another like i can't imagine that stanley kubrick is simply is sitting there going okay um, I'm going to make this movie about ghosts and all of that stuff. And there's going to be some God imagery in how Jack sort of dies and gets subsumed back into the, the ether of the house. And, uh, yeah, so I'm all set. And then you, I start working on the film and I go, wait a second. What if the author doesn't believe in God? I've got to change the whole movie. <laughs> I gotta call him up real quick, make sure he believes in God. Otherwise, I gotta change everything about this. I need a new ending. I probably need a few more characters. I don't even, maybe I've gotta add this bit about Native Americans and maybe <laughs> that's why, you know, I, he's a weird dude. Maybe that's what went on in his head, but uh, I, I would sort of uh, chalk it up to Stanley Kubrick just being a little bit strange. I would like to think that Kubrick just had the most naturalistic, not like Jack Torrance actually hacks his family up at the very end until he calls Stephen King and Stephen King says, I believe in God. And he goes, now I got to fit this into a narrative of the super, God damn it. Now I can't just have a naturalistic ending where there's just ax and blood flying everywhere and little Danny's arm goes off into the distance. Can't do that ending anymore. Now I got to do something supernatural. Whole film gets redone. You know, you so never know. Watching the film that got redone after Stephen King's. <laughs> I'd and like to think that. Yeah, there's there's uh, reels and reels on the cutting room floor that were that were all naturalistic. <laughs> to be fair, to be fair. Oh, so Noah, did you have something really quick? No, go for it. Okay, I just want to say that 
it could be easily interpreted in a few different ways. I don't think it necessarily has to be interpreted as literal ghosts in this house or anything spiritual whatsoever. And so whichever direction you push that, I think would probably depend on the psychology of the author. I think that's a totally valid point. I mean, it could be, the argument could be made, and I've seen this fan theory out there, that at the point where you see Jack having that nightmare where he, where he's like laying on his desk and suddenly has this like red jacket on, and like from that point on, the rest of the movie, that's his novel that he's been writing the entire time. And so if you want to take a viewpoint like that, no, I mean, it doesn't necessarily have to be um, spiritual anyway. Or, I mean, you can also take um, some other kind of like twist where, you know, it's not the novel that he's writing and it's not just some sort of like coma dream type thing. Or maybe there's something just like representative going on here where it's just the things that this little boy with seizures obviously is seeing and it's more of like a psychological thing. Or maybe there's some kind of like mold or some sort of thing in this old ass building that was built on top of a gravesite that is causing them to have hallucinations. You know, there are many different avenues that I think you could take this movie that would be perfectly valid, depending on whether or not you believed in the the literal manifestation of souls or supernatural energy. It doesn't have to be any particular one of those things. We got a couple interesting theories in chat too. Uh, one person says uh, maybe he was a Christian or a believer and couldn't decide if King Slant was good or evil. And asking him if he believed in God was a litmus test. Well, we know that Kubrick wasn't a believer. Um, and then someone else said, "I can see it as being a microcosm of humanity destroying itself if religion is brought in." I God, I this there's so many different things that could follow, I guess, trying, I, that's really interesting. It's going to bug me. Like that's going to bug me more than the Apollo mission conspiracy theory. Now, I mean, th there is a s sort of a salvation narrative going on here. I mean, he, he doesn't ask him if he was a Christian. He asked me if he believed in God, but yeah. there, there, there's, you know, definitely a sense in which, you know, uh, uh, Jack Torrance sort of descends into hell, you know, he's taken by the, the hotel and he's going to stay there for eternity and a kind of, you know, and a kind of, torture of sorts uh while uh you know nominally at least uh you know uh um danny uh and um uh his mom escape and you know are are saved um and which you know, of course brings up the, the 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 fascinating shift about the role of halloran in in the film versus the novel um you know uh, spoiler alert for the for the for the novel uh halloran doesn't die like that in the novel uh, uh halloran survives uh so for people who read the novel and were expecting halloran to come in and save the day to see him take that axe to the chest you know i mean it's shocking for anyone but for people who are expecting him to save the day it's even more so uh, of a horrifying moment but um you know again, I'm, I'm not saying he's necessarily i'm not saying he's a christ figure necessarily but he he does offer salvation he offers them as an escape from hell as it were because there's there's that there's the other idea too i mean and, and the and the uh, the bartender says this sort of explicitly too right the hotel wants them too uh the the, the hotel wants once Danny um, and you know, again, King plays into this in the sequel again. Um, uh, you know, he wants he wants that shining. He wants that that the hotel wants the power. Um, uh, so I, I think you know, w Wendy is desired too, but Danny is 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 the prize. And the fact that Danny escapes is something that uh, uh, you know, uh, well, it, it infuriates the devil, if you will. So hear me out. I would have enjoyed this film much more without the idea of The Shining. I would have liked The Shining without The Shining. Um, I, I would have liked this movie if it was a, a, you know, 146 minutes of watching a man devolve into insanity without 
you know, the metaphysical instantiation or the metaphysical reality of ghosts or Indian burial ground serving as sort of the underlier for those things, however you want to cut it. Now, again, maybe if you take a kind of Ben interpretation that, that, that this is all, maybe it's all in his head, you know, if it was more explicit and we sort to we we sort of got to see the isolation being more of the primary focus and the losing of sanity through his writing that way, and it was maybe be very careful how I say this that it was more obvious that um, it was all in his head and that the film didn't take you down avenues where you sort of start to realize that there is a metaphysical, you know, reality to these things. These apparitions are really there, doing particular things. Um, I feel like that would have been a superior film to me. Um, I, I I don't know if you guys think that's the case. Did you feel did you feel that the film sort of imbued the hotel with like real action? Like the, it, you were meant to think they were real ghosts, or that it was all in his head? Like where do you side on that? It seems obvious to me that like these ghosts were real apparitions in the film that they weren't all in Jack Torrance's head. Yeah, they're, I think they're meant to be real apparitions because they affect change. They open sure. the door. Um, yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. You know, in that, in that sense, it can't all be in his head. Now, if we think of this as like a book within a book, like Ben was saying, then it's possible for the apparitions to, then it sort of shoots that theory away. But I, I mean, I'm less convinced by the book within a book idea. Uh, than I am uh, by the idea that this is a a um, a ghost story, a, a haunted house story, one of the best haunted house stories that um, that's been put to film. I I think that if we take away the the ghosts and the shining and all of the supernatural elements out of this film, uh, one of the uh, one of our commenters who I suspect doesn't really like the film too much, uh, called this to, uh, called the film rather simplistic. It's just about a guy who goes insane and then kill, tries to kill his wife and kid. Um, it would be even it would be even simpler without the ghosts. It would be even simpler without the manifestation of the hotel as a character. Um, I think that 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 simplistic horror movie has been made several times and could be made. Um, and this would just be another one of those. I think the the phenomenological aspects uh, raise the bar a little bit. Go ahead. So a couple things. Um, you know, you could make the argument that even with the ghosts, films like that have been made, right? Like adding ghosts doesn't make it necessarily any more novel. Secondly, simplistic, you know, that's one way to put it. But I like horror, I guess this is me talking about the sort of horror films I like. I like horror films that focus in on one particular thing, one component of the human condition and and just hammer it down, right? So finding something fundamental about the human condition, whether it's the idea of contemplating your own demise or losing what it means to be a person, being replicated, being removed, having no voice, get out. I mean, these like very obvious i mean you could call films that focus on one thing very heavily simplistic but those tend to be the horror films if they're done well and i guess that's the that's the nebulous part right um that last that matter at least to me they're they're the ones that stick with me so um it, it wouldn't necessarily be a, a negative for me to have a, a just another film. Again, this was done in 1980, so there's been a lot of films on top of it since then, um, and there have been some before that. But uh, you know, it wouldn't it wouldn't be a criticism to me 
um, to have a basic story if that basic story is explored well. And this movie had 146 minutes to do that exploration. And I, and I think it did some of that really well. The camera work, the steady cam, the, the, the uh, setting, the exploration of different, you know, the, that's the masterpiece of this movie to me is is the setting and so you know you can keep all of that and explore the the madness of jack torrance the you know devolving into you know who he is not um you know uh in in a way that i think you know one person can call it simplistic and another person may call it a masterpiece if it's done well i don't think that actually removes any of the uh potential from the film by having it be just another one of those movies let's say i don't totally disagree with you um, at the same time, I think we're also ignoring what the ghosts add to the story, um, how they turn this into sort of a cyclical, uh, that Jack Torrance's journey becomes a cyclical thing rather yeah. than something that only happens once within the context of the A to B of the story. So the idea that uh, violence, and this is a film that's a, a theme that's explored a little bit more in the book because we learned that Jack Torrance had an abusive father, and so it becomes this a, a a drama about the cycles of abuse. And I think that that's something that the film is able to get at when we add the ghosts and the supernatural elements. Yeah, I, I, I want to I want to build on that, Jim, because I, th this is my answer to to, to yeah, your your question, Noah. Uh, if, if you could remove the, there's a version of this movie in which you remove the shining mm -hmm. you know just the telekinetic powers there is a serious plot issue there as to how exactly halloran ends up being contacted to come back um but sure. you know, a creative writer could figure out a way to to plug that hole that didn't feel too artificial so if you really wanted to rag on this film you could say that the only reason the shining is in this film is is for to fill that plot hole. Um, and I think that that's particularly harsh, but I can sort of see that, see where that criticism would come from. But I don't think you can remove the ghosts for basically what Jim was just saying, because ghosts, I mean, ghosts can mean lots of different things, but I think one, one, one of the more common things is just, it's, it's a stand in for the past and how the past influences and controls us and affects us in ways that we often don't appreciate or don't understand. Um, that can be through a, a literal sort of genetic inheritance, like inheriting a, a genetic predisposition towards alcoholism or something like that. It can be through how it is that our parents affect us uh, when we're kids in ways that, you know, that leave scars from experiences that we don't even remember. And, and, and I think that is, you know, that's what's happening here. The, the, the ghosts are, are, are the past of the characters. The ghosts are the fact that you, you know, you can't get away from the fact that, you know, t you know this hotel was built on an Indian burial ground. It was built long before anyone uh, uh, was alive. There, there's, there's actually a, interesting little, a little aside. There is a, uh, a version uh, of a chapter which was not printed in the original book, which King, which King removed from the original book, but printed elsewhere. I believe it's called Before the Play, um, which uh, tells the story uh, of uh, what happens in the, the Overlook Hotel, you know, uh, before... Jack Torrance ever arrives, like decades before, and it's a, it's a uh, you know a, a, a murder happens, uh, you know gang, gangster sort of murder sort of situation. It sets up some of the the, the ghost elements, um, and you know like 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 many a horror, like a haunted house story is trying to sort of get us in touch with is this, this you know when you move into a house, there's a history there that you don't know. There's pe people have loved, people have lost, people have created life. Life has ended in this place, and you are oblivious to that. And there is something that is incredibly sort of you know, elemental about that power of history 
about the power of human humans past and the emotions that they've invested in places and in things um, that, uh, you know, it, it should have power over us. It should influence us, you know, uh, to steal a line from um, um, uh, Magnolia. We may be done with the past, but the past isn't done with us. And, and that's, to me, what ghosts symbolize. That's whether or not you escape the hotel, you cannot escape the past. I've got I think, a, a, go ahead. I, I really want to interject on that point. And I think it's really interesting that you guys are taking this position so strongly, whereas Noah and myself might diverge just a little bit. Not not to put words in your mouth, but I think you, you know a comment on that um, before Jim and Garrett started dis, uh, defending the ghost idea. Um, in this particular movie, taken by itself, I don't think they serve that function in a, in a way that that is is unique or like could only be done with ghosts. Um, I I really do think you could take out that part at least. Maybe not necessarily the psychic powers and the shining thing, but definitely the the supernatural as it pertains to the ghosts from this film and still have a perfectly coherent story that's just as good. And you could even fill in the elements where they do come in to to play a role in the plot, and it would be just fine. For instance. Um, the scene where Jack goes up to the room and he sees the woman in the bathtub. What what does that really do for the movie? What, you know, I mean, does it does it move the plot in any particular direction? I mean, you might argue that it definitely tells us something about Jack's character, but I also think that um, a well placed flashback. Maybe he had. Um, cheating in his past or something like that, you know, or whatever. Maybe he had some kind of like brush with death. I'm not sure that that it, as good of a scene as it was it necessarily speaks to the house having some kind of agency where it's pushing Jack in any particular direction, just, just from what we see, right? Like, I mean, I think some of that stuff probably does come from the book, but I don't think we see it in Kubrick's film. That's, that's the point that I'm trying to make here is that I'm not sure if like other context is getting pulled into the movie and being applied to the movie when it might not necessarily exist in this, this standalone piece of art. You know what I mean? Um, that's that's kind of like why whenever I first stepped into this, I I didn't get that impression. Like I I saw it as just like another kind of like um, a story set within a location where there is supernatural activity going on. I didn't get the impression that the house had its own agency. And even when we talk about the cyclical stuff, um, yeah, I mean I I guess so, but I don't think the the cycle there necessarily speaks to that um, beyond it just being maybe a reincarnation thing or you know whatever. Maybe it's just that the spirit of you know <laughs> the character jack escaped from that trap or whatever it is and then came back like i don't necessarily think it speaks to the house itself having like its its own individual character or whatever like that and therefore that entire part of the story could probably be completely removed from me and it would still be just as good like even if we're talking about something that has christian symbolism um especially if we talk about the ending where jack runs into a labyrinth and gets lost in the cold loses himself and dies um, you know, I think we could honestly have some parallels there with like the divine comedy, um, the lowest level of hell about it being a freezing lake, et cetera, et cetera. Like all of that stuff can still be tied in without, without this idea of ghosts. Like, I really just think it's an unnecessary part of the story that kind of like makes it creepier, but isn't serving a unique purpose. Well, I mean, if we get rid of the ghosts, we would lose blowjob bear and we can't lose <laughs> blowjob bear. <laughs> it's an absolute necessity when you see The Shining to see a, a guy in a bear costume blowing another guy and then looking, saying, what are you looking at? This is perfectly normal. Um, no, I, so let's pick up on the, uh, the, the moment that you, you highlighted then. And I'll, Two people can look at a painting and see 
two completely different things. You looked at that moment in the film, you saw, why the fuck is this on a, on a wall in an art gallery? I looked at that same moment and for me, it was, it was about a animalistic, a, a, a version of a relationship that is only based upon lust and watching that relationship devolve. She gets out of the bathtub. He gives her the, oh, we're going to do some things now. Uh, he's clearly drawn to her. And then over through his, in, in front of him, she goes from attractive to old, uh, young and attractive to old. And then she laughs at him, sort of mocking his own lust. And for me, that worked as the, ho if I'm imbuing the hotel with agency and I'm imbuing these ghosts with a, um, a, a desire to affect the character, then that is the hotel's way of mocking his relationship with his wife. That it starts off, you know, lustful, uh, it, it starts off with, with a degree of attractiveness and, and he's drawn to her and then slowly she gets old and ugly and laughs at him. And that, that worked for me. Um, it, it worked to sort of bring, bring about these ideas of what happens to relationships and to, um, our, our, the attractiveness of our partners and the the draw to our partners, especially when those uh, uh, those draws are based purely upon animalistic urges. Um, so while you saw that as being sort of a throwaway element, maybe just a creepy moment in the film, I actually found that to be really quite necessary um, as the hotel sort of trying to take apart Jack's psyche. Does that make sense? So, you know, I, I, we're dancing around the idea that, well, I think Garrett said this explicitly, actually, that, um, look, I mean, ghosts are, ghosts are effective in these contexts insofar as they highlight psychological components of the human condition and, ex and, 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 and you know, exacerbate some of the negative pieces of those things, right? And I, I don't know if the metaphysical instantiation of a real ghost is actually necessary for all of that in this movie. So let's distinguish this from maybe the, the recent Haunting of Hill House, right? That it's, where it's almost entirely explicit that these ghosts exist to, let's say mock, but underscore various, you know, um, psychological conditions that these like seven siblings in this show have. I don't want to necessarily get into it for those who haven't seen it. But there in that show, it's very explicit that these ghosts are real ghosts. You don't know, at least initially, but you find out eventually that they're, they're the, the, the show wants you to think that they're real in much the same way. I think in The Shining, uh, Kubrick wants you to understand that these are real metaphysical abstract entities that, that affect reality. And like Jim said, they open the door. I totally forgot about that. He clicks the door, opens it up. Um, so then the question becomes, is it, is, is every, eh, I don't say is every film, but is, is it necessary in every single movie or show to have those ghosts be real things? I felt like in this one, I could have got away with it not being real. I feel like uh, even pushing the narrative forward in that sequence that you were talking about, um, Jim, that's still making the ghost a real thing that's sort of above and beyond Jack and his family. Like, 
having uh, something outside of the family impinge upon their will doesn't seem to be entirely necessary for the same point that you get in the movie to happen. Like, I, I just, I don't know. I, I'm not entirely sure why that was necessary. I mean, I, it's a ghost story. It's a haunted house story. It makes sense to, to make it real. I'm, I'm not trying to tell Kubrick how he should have made his film. But I, I guess for me, I would have enjoyed it if it would have, like you could have that same sequence, exact same sequence, with more of an explanation, more of a focus, more of a cinematic feel on Jack's guilt or his um, or, or the degradation of his relationship with Wendy. Like there are a whole host of things that you could utilize. There are ways that you could film those sequences that focus on the underlining psychological or familial horror elements that, you know, I clearly want to be shown throughout this movie without having you know, real ghosts actually harming a, a family. Do you know, does that make sense? I, I I feel like it's a quibble. It's not the end of the world for me to know that they're real ghosts, but I, I guess maybe it's the super nihilistic atheist in me that would felt like I, I I wanted this to be all in his head, but have that same oomph, that same drive. I don't know. I think I'm just bitching at this point. Probably. Yeah, well, I mean, you're not, maybe you are, maybe you aren't. I mean, you're, it's it's entirely acceptable that this is just not your kind of film. Um, that you would prefer the the gray instead of this film. But I, but I like. But see, here's the weird thing: is I I typically in like I can like the, the Haunting of Hill House has real ghosts. One of my favorite like uh, shows I've seen in a long time, and it it's a familial horror film. Just in the same way, I think we could consider The Shining somewhat of a familial horror film. I mean, it it definitely is a familial horror film. And the ghosts are real. I mean, I can think of, of other event horizon. There's a, a metaphysical being or set of beings that want to kill. I mean, I, this is something I actually do like, but this film made it seem like it would have worked better. I guess I'm saying if those, if that, uh, that, that meta narrative around, uh, you know, the other attacking this family would have been removed. I don't know. But yeah, so th this typically is my thing, like that I enjoy. But I didn't, I didn't get it in this movie. I'm not entirely sure why. Anyway, were you still able to like some of the other the familial horror things? Like if we just, if you look at this movie and kind of think that the ghosts are in the head and yeah. just sort of uh, drop your program when the ghost unlocks the door, which is the only real uh, physical change in the environment that a ghost makes. Uh, would you then, were you still able to attach yourself to the film and, and its drama at that point? I think so. I think so. Um, yeah, I, I, I guess what I'm aiming at, and I don't feel like I'm articulating this in the way I want, but I, I feel like the point that the, like the, um, the, the entire point of the ghosts, right? Underscoring these problems that this family had, that time could have just been used to continue to explore the problems that this family had in a much more explicit way, I guess, um, in a much more naturalistic way. Um, I really, I got to think about this a little more. I, I'm, I'm, I'm not entirely sure why I didn't buy it and why I didn't enjoy it the way that you guys did. I, I, let me think about this a little more. I'm not entirely sure why. I think I have an idea about that, actually. Um, I've got to say that some of my favorite points in this movie are, are entirely driven by the fantastic acting of um oh shoot uh danny and shelly 
So I really do think like you were talking about before the way she behaves in such a way that kind of like it, it really screams gaslighting. And when Danny sort of like acts awkward and uncomfortable whenever Jack gives him a hug, you know, I mean, it's stuff like that, that I really am like, man, that is, that gets under my skin a lot. You know, I love those scenes. Um, some of my favorite parts of the movie, but I think the reason that the ghost narrative sort of clashes with that, or maybe doesn't work is just because it is so, um, it's so strong of an element that it directly conflicts with the idea that Jack becomes the antagonist. And if I remember correctly in, in, in the book, and of course I'm, I'm going to do this again, but in the book, um, Jack is killed by the house and then the other three characters are able to leave and survive. Um, so it becomes clear that the house is the one doing the attacking in Kubrick's film. I think it is supposed to be more about Jack evolving into madness and doing the, the direct harm to the family and becoming the direct threat. So if you're going to have a movie where a man devolves into madness, gets lost in the labyrinth, that's, you know, whatever, whatever. Um, I think the, the ghost element there would need to take a back seat to that. You know, I mean, if they would have done it in like more of a, a subtle way where it just has like a soft influence or you you see some things whenever Danny has his visions or like, you know, the only real proof that makes you think that this house is really haunted is when the pin comes out of the freezer door and he lets gets let out like that. That could have been amazing. I feel like that would have been amazing. It just had, it, it, it would have needed to been it would have needed to been a little more subtle than it was. It was just it was too prominent in the movie to really play the the plot like driving factor that it needed to play, but also not clash with the fact that this story in the movie, at least is about Jack just being fa falling into madness, basically. So to a certain extent, maybe some of the, some of those things are just, you know, sort of your mileage may vary as to whether it's, yeah. it's, it's too much or not enough. But I mean, you, you mentioned, you guys we've mentioned several fantastic scenes, but some other ones, you know, when the, 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 the doors and the blood uh, is, is such a phenomenal image. Um, the scene when they're going up the stairs and he's like, give me the bat, Wendy, give me the bat. I mean, that's, I mean, Nicholson is just so out of his head there. And then, and, and the camera work and Shelley Duvall is just fucking terrified uh, and all that. I mean, and the final, whatever it is, like 25 minutes or so, the, that whole sequence, you know, you're not, you're not, you're holding your breath, you know, that you, 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 you are so terrified and it's paced so fantastically uh as uh, you know as all the, the pressure is finally coming to a head and uh um you know and of course the iconic scene which he uh, in which jack cuts down the door with the axe and then here's johnny i mean you know the, all of these scenes i think are are are, are, are all right oh and if all work and no play make jack adult uh, jack a dull boy right i mean that that is so fucking good i mean there's just i mean again i don't want to elementize or atomize the the, the story into just a series of scenes but but, they're, but they're... you kind of have to Garrett. like that's i feel like that's okay in this movie like you you should be allowed to do that because i feel like there that's sort of how this film was made like that's that may, I, I, I don't want to do it in any other way than that. Like the scenes themselves breaking them. And we had a comment uh, in our chat that said uh, as much that this is actually how we should analyze a Kubrick film is like scene by scene, color by color, you know, like that sort of thing. So I, I don't, I think that's a fine way to, to, uh, to discuss these things. Uh, well, perhaps, I mean, I don't know. I, I, um, 
I think maybe you just primed me with your earlier point about about the YouTubeization of it. You know, if you were to do a supercut, and you certainly could do a supercut of the iconic scenes, but you know, again, I feel a lot would be lost because, again, like I say, I think the tone and the 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 the, the score uh, does such a fantastic job of bringing us to this place and just living in the hotel with them, even before you know the action or in between the action beats, uh, is a powerful part of the experience. And I don't want to to distract or take away. From uh, from the the effect uh, that that those interstices uh, play in the overall uh, experience of the film, um, so that that's I think perhaps what I mean when I when I when I'm afraid about atomizing the film. So I have a, I have a question for you guys: the scene with the axe um, with Jack Nicholson. Um, what other film have we discussed in our podcast that has a scene just like this? In fact, some could say, and some have, that it actually inspired The Shining. Creep. Oh, are you talking about creep? No, man. We creep. creep. <laughs> it's nineteen eighty. Creep. What are you? Listen, uh, this. Well, we're talking about B time right now. Okay, Mark Duplass <laughs> clearly was the influence for Kubrick. Okay, I don't know what the fuck you're talking about. <laughs> Obviously, this <laughs> is the case. Shining influenced this, and I I was about ready to go. How the fuck did Shining influence Creep? But it, no, there, uh, <laughs> what the hell are you talking about? Phantom Carriage. Phantom oh, right. Carriage. Yeah. Uh, Victor, Victor Sostrom, 1920, 1921. Uh, yeah, so we we talked about how Phantom Carriage influenced Shining in the podcast on Phantom Carriage. We okay. did, didn't we? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah, I that I and I was I it struck me when I was watching the scene. Actually, I watched the you know, I'm sure you guys have seen it too, the behind the scene scenes in The Shining where J Jack Nicholson's getting ready to like knock the door down. That was fucking awesome. Yeah, look, for all the for all of the the this film didn't do it for me that I'm giving. I the acting Jack Nicholson is just fucking scores above everybody else. Like this he's so good in this movie. Um, and there is a viscerality to his character that is is um, stunning and terrifying. I, I get that. I get that entirely. Another um, piece of trivia, actually. Apparently, uh, uh, Kubrick had considered uh, both Robert De Niro and Robin Williams for the role instead, but he d determined that Robert De Niro wasn't psychotic enough, and Robin Williams was too psychotic for the role. <laughs> I also don't discount Shelley Duvall. She's absolutely fantastic in this movie as well. Uh, she is, she's much more than I think a lot of people give her credit for in this film because she, the beginning scenes when she is talking about the abuse in such a blithe and, oh, this has happened and now he's all better and everything's okay. Um, that is, that, that's chilling. Uh, when you understand where this film is going and what Jack Torrance really is. Um, so how she has sort of internalized the cyclical nature of abuse in those early scenes. And then she's a fine screen queen in the, the latter parts of the film as well. Um, I, I think Jack Nicholson is fantastic in this movie, but Shelley Duvall is doing just as good work um, in, the, in this film as well. Um, it's a different kind of role with different demands on her, and I think she rises to meet all of them. So since you brought it up before, maybe we should go into a little more depth yeah, on, on the that. ethics of, of the treatment, because, yeah. Uh, so what happened? Was, I've never heard this. So uh, Kubrick, for example, told everyone on the set to give absolutely no uh, attention or regard or sympathy 
for Shelley Duvall. She was to be isolated from everyone else. People were instructed sort of to be rude to her uh, and, and precisely to put her in an emotional state of sort of hopelessness and fragility uh, where, where other human beings you know, couldn't be counted on or, or relied on. Um, and, and so you know, that, that creates a, a pretty intense tone right there. And, and you know, it, it's not at all clear that, I mean, she obviously knew she was signing up to make a horror movie and she knew she was signed up to make a movie with Stanley Kubrick who was a notoriously demanding actor. Um, but you know, techniques and tactics like that—that uh, that, that sort of was deliberately designed to, to to push her to her, you know, psychological and physiological limits. Uh, I mean, again, there's there's more to it. I can't remember all the details. There's a, there's a she she suffered from nervous exhaustion, including physical illness and hair loss over the course of the film. Um, there were there were actual physiological and and emotional effects on her as an actress through the course of making this movie. Um, and it was deliberately designed that way by, it was deliberately designed by Kubrick to, uh, to, to inflict the maximum amount of psychological damage on her while filming this film. Jack Nicholson wasn't immune from this as well. Kubrick basically forced him to eat cheese sandwiches during the course of the film. And he hates cheese sandwiches, which, okay, that's fine. Um, but he, so he was forced to eat things that he didn't like in order to, uh, in order to put him in more of an agitated and angry state. These are manipulations that directors do. Um, to various degrees. Um, I remember uh, Steven Spielberg even did something like this on Sta Saving Private Ryan, where um, Matt, Matt Damon's going through press for Goodwill Hunting and having a grand old time while Edward Burns, Tom Hanks, and everybody else are going through boot camp at exactly the same time. So uh, when Matt Damon arrives on set looking uh, footloose and fancy free, everybody else is, uh, is exhausted. And it, there's sort of a, it, it creates this kind of um, adversarial animosity from the other uh, castmates toward Matt Damon. That, so that's a different degree of the same kind of director manipulation and the ethics of doing that as a director are questionable. I mean, Kubrick, without a doubt, gets fantastic results from his actors. There are multiple uh, films in which the the best Matthew Modine has ever been in Ben was in film Full Metal Jacket. The best. Uh, maybe not the best Jack Nicholson has ever been is in The Shining. I think uh, his performance in Carl Knowledge is actually much better. Um, but these, so Kubrick definitely gets results, but does he do it in an ethical way? I think that's a an open question and something that I'm not altogether comfortable with as, especially the degree to which Shelley Duvall suffered for uh, for the creation of this character. I thought William Friedkin was an asshole for making the room cold in The Exorcist. You know, Jesus. Yeah, that's that's a whole, that's a whole nother level. Yeah, I mean, that's uh, William Friedkin was an asshole for doing that. Um, yet, it it got results. Is that and this is this goes far beyond it. Um, the things that Kubrick was doing to Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman and and Eyes Wide Shut sort of. Uh, deliberately trying to pick apart their relationship and make them uh, make them resent each other over the course of that film and isolating them um, during that time was 
it's a question whether or not that's an ethical way to create art. Um, and it, it, it sort of goes, it, it dovetails with this uh, controversial idea that you have to suffer in order to be a good artist, which um, I wouldn't, I, I don't, I think that's an open question. Um, it's not, it's not something that I would particularly um, say to people, hey, you want to be an artist? Go suffer some and then come back and do your art thing. Uh, um, yeah, so I, it's, it's, it's something I'm not terribly comfortable with when I think about Kubrick, um, even though he is one of the masters of this art form. Well, I think you just said it, right? Like if, if he's one of the masters, then clearly there's some sort of palpable, tangible, real effect um, that his methods have, uh, you know, I would, I would expect perhaps. Um, like obviously this isn't experimentally controlled, right? Like who knows? Um, but the proof is in the pudding in a sense. Um, and whereas we are just like talking about art in this particular case, like what it kind of reminds me of a little bit is um, like old school psychological experiments where they put people into horrible situations or take convenient samples from like prisons and do crazy things. But the results of that research ends up being incredibly informative <laughs> for the rest of time forever. Um, so it really just does become, I guess, a matter of, for me at least, and I hate to be like a cold utilitarian about this, but, you know, in some in some ways, I think you have to weigh the result against the, the means. Um, and if like your actors are agreeing to this, like, I, I don't know if they knew ahead of time that he would be doing this on purpose, but if they knew and they still agreed to do it, um, you know, I don't know. I mean, I think that's that's kind of on kind of you know like i mean if they're accepting it themselves i don't necessarily know if it's entirely immoral um like obviously there are method actors today that do insane things to themselves to try and produce a result and oftentimes it ends up being an incredible result with real palpable effects but they made the choice themselves and i mean it kind of sucks and it's kind of sad but in the end i mean you've got to agree that it is amazing art that they end up producing because of the suffering <laughs> i don't know <laughs> look yeah, uh, I what i'm go ahead no I just wanted to add, if I was Shelly, like hearing this for the first time, if I was Shelly Duvall, I would have like ripped the fucking arm out of the socket of Danny Lloyd to just keep going with this. Like I would just would have said, you know, if you're going to do this to me, come here, little kid. Like I would have just kept it going. Like that's if you're going to go, go all the way. Like, you know what I'm saying? Jesus. I think Danny, I, I think the uh, the the actor, I could be mistaken about, about this, but I think the actor didn't know it was a horror movie um, until he saw it. Uh, yeah, you got to. It. He was not. He didn't know that it was a horror movie. Um, just to, to, he didn't know it was a horror movie until he saw it when he was like seventeen years old or something like oh, that. Shit. Many years afterwards, he, he saw a highly edited version of it when he was a kid, just so they could show him something. But apparently, it, it, it was you know a, a bare bones version of it, so he had he had no idea. Uh, the, 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 several of the scenes which show Duvall's running around holding him is actually a, it's a dummy that she's holding. It's not actually the kid. So. That's perfect segue into a comment that we just got that said you could replace Danny with the fake baby from American Sniper and nothing would change. Damn. Yeah, I, I saw that earlier. Um, I, I don't think that particular commenter likes the movie too much. I've, I've been watching his comments or her comments throughout the entire uh, 
entire uh, podcast. And it was all like, I hate this movie so much. It was like, all right. I, I, I will give this much. I did think oh. that Danny's little finger thing was didn't really work for me. That apparently actually was the actor's decision. And Kubrick decided to to, to keep it in and to use it. And uh, But I, I will agree that, you know, I, I was maybe about Danny's age, maybe slightly older the first time I saw this movie. Uh, and, and even then I thought that seemed a little, little silly. So, uh, but at the same time, you know, uh, even though it came from, it came from the novel, but the you know, red rum just as a device, that's pretty fucking awesome right there. You know, if, if you see, if you see it coming, it, it doesn't work, but you know, if you don't see it coming as I didn't, it, uh, it hits like a hammer, man. Yeah. And uh, what, just to sort of go back to, um, I want to talk about this method acting and method directing uh, a little bit, a little bit more. I agree that this work was a little weird, um, but the red rum worked on me the first time I saw it. Um, subsequent, not as much, of course. Um, yeah, like method acting, method directing. It's it, those are kind of two different things. I think when Daniel Day Lewis uh, becomes a cobbler and uh, decides to sort of. Uh, uh, move himself away from uh, all 21st century um, technology in order to get into his part. He's making that choice on his own. It's different when you have a director masterminding your own, your torture. And I don't know how much those actors know about the manipulative method. So there's a question of consent there. Um, if you have a meeting when you first sit down and it's like the director says, look, I'm going to make you eat cheese sandwiches, which I know you hate. I'm going to tell the cast and crew not to ignore you. Um, I'm going to uh, try to uh, build animosity between you and this other actor, um, et cetera, et cetera. So if you if you sit down and you say, here are the th here are the manipulations that I'm going to do to you, you're doing, and you get consent from the actors to do those things, then it's a different question and it's quite okay. But then you're also removing the uh, effectiveness of those manipulations. Um, if if I tell you that I'm going to tor torture you with cheese sandwiches. <laughs> which is kind of funny. Uh, if I tell you that I'm going to torture you with cheese sandwiches, then you're not going to, it's not going to be as effective of a torture when I hand you a cheese sandwich. You're going to be like, oh yeah, okay, I expect this. And, um, so I, I, the the key to me becomes the consent of the actors and whether or not that um, that consent is is implied or explicit or not given at all. And if it's not given at all, then I think that that's a, a bit of an issue. And no matter whether or not we have good art as a result of that or not, um, yeah, like that's a, it's still a problem. Uh, so what would you say, Jim, to if the director said, look, um, you know, not Kubrick, but someone else saying, look, uh, my plan for this film is to go full Stanley Kubrick and to and, and to just put all of my actors through the ringer. I don't want I can't tell you in advance what it's going to be because it'll undercut the effectiveness. But I want you to know what you're signing up for. And if you agree to work on this picture, uh, uh, you you you, in, you know, indemnify me against any shitty behavior that I or the rest of the cast and crew may do to you. Is that, that that's, a form of a, that's a form of implied consent. 
um, where you're sort of implying what you're going to do and you're getting consent for it. I think that's better ethically. Um, and uh, when I have directed, I have said something along those lines of I'm, you know, we're going to do things that uh, we're, we're going to do um, some method work. We're going to do some uh, personalization work. You're going to have to really commit to some of these things. And uh, uh, I will tell you what they are. And you're welcome to say, I'm not going to do that. and not going to not going to play those games. And that's perfectly fine. Um, so yeah, I, I think that that is, that is much better ethically than, Hey, we're going to do a horror movie together and yeah, I'm not going to tell you what I'm going to do and then spring it on the actors later. The degree to which Shelley was, Shelley Duvall was affected by this, by making this movie, um, that says to me that there's, that this is on shaky ground, ethically speaking. Um, I I love Stanley Kubrick. I love Stanley Kubrick's movies, but whether or not the I I, I have problems with some of those methods. At um, least she didn't have to eat the fucking cheese sandwiches. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> Maybe she did. <laughs> not the cheese sandwich. <laughs> yeah, that's sort of become a uh, a metonym for what we're talking about: directors torturing actors with cheese sandwiches. <laughs> I don't know. It's certainly something I think we have to bring up, especially in a in a post Me Too society where we're talking about um, the treatment of women on sets and treatment of women in um, in the entertainment industry. Uh, we we probably have to talk about some of this stuff, which is uncomfortable. I don't know. Uh, we should call it post Me Too. I think it's more enduring Me Too. But well, yeah. After the okay, you're right. You're right. You're right. I I. I don't mean to to suggest that the Me Too movement is that we are after the Me, Me Too movement, but after the explosion of hashtag Me Too, this is the type of conversation that I think we should be having, as as well as the conversations that we've been having for the last hour and a half as well. And I'm done with that line of questioning. <laughs> Do you have anything else, though, that you want to? to ask us about any other things that you were uh no i i you got this is wow, this is different for me this is one of those times where i'm i i don't have much to say i'm i really just want to listen i'm fascinated that this movie scared you guys so much i, I kind of want to take it back to there um just because i i'm not in this this movie has all of the things that typically scare me it's a familial horror film it has a very heavy domestic abuse themes in it um and it just didn't do anything for me. So I, I, I'm fascinated by that. I'm going to be fascinated the whole time that we, uh, uh, even after this, uh, I'm not entirely sure why that is. Anyway, that's that's kind of where my mind is at as you guys are talking. That and cheese sandwiches. I, for some reason, I'm craving that now. I don't. That doesn't even sound good, but it just. I want to try it anyway. Yeah, um, Garrett, I'll throw this back to you. I mean, this is I, if I recall correctly, um, and I we're gonna. I'm going to blow your score anyway, since I already know what it's going to be. This is one of your like favorite films, not just horror films. This is one of your favorite films ever. I wish I would have seen this at the right time and I would have like it would have stuck with me. Maybe it was a setting thing. You know, there's something to be said for that. Like I look, I saw Child's Play 3 in the theater with my dad in like 1991 and that shit never left me. And that's a terrible horror film. It's awful. 
It's like one, it's hilarious going back and watching it. But I still can't put my feet over the bed because of that movie. Like I'm not, I shit you not. Like it, it's sometimes just seeing a film at the right time in your life, at the right age, with the right things going on, tends to to be the mitigating factor in um, how scary and how terrifying it is to you even years later. I could probably say the same thing for Event Horizon when I was much older. So yeah, I'm fascinated by that. Um, but I like the idea, I'm starting to really get to know sort of your schema, your th what really scares you. I like that because now I can recommend like a whole host of shit to you. Like whenever I see a horror film about death, I PM Ben. Whenever I see a horror film about you know, eating the contents of an ashtray, I go to gym, anything non-edible. So now I now I kind of have your piece. So I'm, I'm happy that we had this just for that reason. So I've often joked to Jim that part of the reason why he doesn't find horror movies scary is he watches them in the wrong way. I, I, I think maybe what you need to do, Noah, is go to Colorado in the middle of the winter, find like an isolated cabin and, and watch it, you know, as the snow is falling around you and and maybe it'll, it'll get in your bones. Uh, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a strange sort of request to make, but I do think that you're right, that an awful lot of films in general, but perhaps horror movies more than most, uh, it, it can depend on just simply the mood and the context in which you see it. If you are... You know, if you're on edge, if you're keyed up, if you're in a space to be scared, it can be a lot more effective than if you are, you know, uh, maybe tired or distracted or irritated or even hungry or something like that. Uh, th those sorts of psychological walls can can sort of immunize you, you know, the, the effect that the film has on you, perhaps. Um, now, you know, that having been said, obviously, the, 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 the filmmakers and the director need to sort of you know, do their best to cut through all that. And the better it can cut through that, the better the film is, the more effective the film is. Um, I think I've, I've mentioned before part of what I, I, I found so fascinating about Session 9, what was a real test for me about that film, was that I started watching it. I was tired and distracted. But I, I, once I started watching it, I couldn't peel myself away. It cut through all my my defenses. And I, I, I think that the, the, the Shining, again, both book and film, had this exact same effect on me. I, 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 there's there's no amount of, of context or preparation that I could have done uh, that would have made uh, this film not be just completely effective on me. Um, so, I mean, you, you ask, yeah, you, yes, it is one of my favorite horror films and my, my favorite films, period. I, and I go through it and I think, I mean, we've, we've talked about several things which are arguably criticisms, you know, could you change this? Could you change that? I, as far as I can tell, I think there's almost no nothing i would call a flaw in this film i mean there's there's a couple of minor goofs there's a scene in which in the beginning which you can see the the shadow of the helicopter down in the corner uh you know there's as i already mentioned i don't really uh, that danny's finger trick doesn't really work for me but i mean talk about just nitpicking i mean the the uh, i i go through this and, and yeah you could have told it differently you could have done it without the ghosts or without the psychic powers but that would have just just been a different film. I mean, maybe it would have been as good, but I don't think it would have been better. Uh, it, it's really hard for me to imagine uh, uh, improving on this film in any way. Changing it, sure, but improving on it, no. I think this. Yeah, that's this, fair. This is a damn near flawless film. Yeah, that's fair. I mean, that's a criticism I could lodge against every horror film that I like. Well, if you just change this around, you know what I mean. I I completely understand that. Um, that makes sense. Uh. I mean, it's, this this film is cla is iconic for a reason. I, I you're not the only person that I know who considers this to to be the scariest film they've ever seen, which I find fascinating. Um, before we wrap up, I have got to ask you what your favorite, just like thirty second version of what your favorite Kubrick conspiracy theory is for this movie. Do you 
know how many there are. I don't know if you guys have seen the Netflix documentary Room 237, but sweet mother of God, this film has been analyzed to a degree that I don't think any other film ever made has been. Can you run through some of those conspiracy theories? Because I have not seen Room 237. I wanted to see it prior to this this podcast and, and that it didn't work yeah, out. Yeah, it, it, oh. would, it, it would take me an entire other podcast, but the one that I love the most is the 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 Kubrick throwing in little sequences, like the Danny wearing the Apollo shirt that, that Kubrick actually filmed the moon land. Uh, he filmed the fake moon landing and that it wasn't, that was his, there's these little things scattered throughout the movie that are sort of indicative of him basically hinting you know, uh, uh, ever presently, forever solidified in cinema history that he he helped fake the moon landing. Um, without going into it, just just go watch Room 237. If you think we're crazy in the things that we analyze, holy Lord Jesus, there's Holocaust shit, there's Indian shit. There's some interesting, so actually, without getting too far into it, like there's uh, imagery in this film that seems almost entirely purposeful with regard to like Indian... Uh, say Native American, should say Native American genocide. Um, so there's quite a few sequences with little, uh, I don't know, uh, things that come to mind. There's uh, when they're in the the um, the storage room with all the food. There's the cans of the um, with the uh, the Indian head on them, and that has some particular historical significance. There's a scene of disrespecting Native American heritage when Jack Torrance is throwing the ball, and if you notice what he's hitting, he's actually hitting, I believe like a Native American painting or something like that. Like there's a whole bunch of stuff like that throughout the film. So people have these different interpretations of what Kubrick is trying to throw in there, but it's never ending. I mean, just, it, it, there's so many things. There's Holocaust things in there. It's it's, it's completely wild. Um, so I guess I'm the only nutbag Alex Jones type who actually cared enough to look into this. You know, it's not that interesting. Don't worry about it. It's not why the film was made. Let's just skip that entirely. Um, I will rate this movie. I'll, I guess I'll start, unless you guys have anything else to add. I'll. Uh, Close up. Gary, you want to add, go. One, one minor thing. This is about the book, not about the movie, but it was something I absolutely loved. Um, in, in, in the version of the book that I had, it may differ with different editions, different printings, but I think it was it was I think it was two one seven in the book and two uh two three seven in the movie or the other way around. Um but uh, the, the scene in which Danny finally makes it into room 217 was on page 217 of the book. And you know. I, you can call that a gimmick, but I thought it was—I thought it was fantastic. That, that that just blew my skirt up. I loved it. Like that's cool. Like that—that that actually is kind of wild. Like the moon landing one. I—I I need to have way too much cannabis to be into that. That's I—that's a whole other world. Um, yeah. I th so I I just want to say kind of like my summary thoughts. This is really hard for me. I like I usually have notes when I do. <laughs> when I do my final thoughts on a film, but this movie was so fucking enigmatic to me. Um, I I didn't know what to write for a lot of it. I, I watched the entire thing and I'm just like, I'm trying to piece together some sort of cohesive narrative that made me feel like this was a horror film as opposed to a very interesting stylistic film about setting and, you know, the, the uh, very unique cinematography like it, it just was an experiment in film right um much that maybe if we i don't know why we keep going back to creep but much in the same way something like the mumble Corian aspects of creep were enigmatic and and novel and weird and funky like this film had a much larger scope version of that where i felt like the setting was way more key than i ever remembered when i was watching this when i was a, a, a kid and i i left 
in 2019 feeling the same way. Um, I felt less about the characters, about Jack and Wendy and Danny, and more about um, ex exploration of isolation within a setting of a giant place that you feel so tiny in. I mean, maybe we could piece this together in some way and say something like, you know, because I know domestic abuse is maybe one of the more thicker analytical components of this movie. Like when I watch it, if there is anything I'll pull from it, that's something like that. It, it would be domestic abuse or family abuse. Maybe it could be something like, you know, um, no matter no matter how open and um, no matter how obvious, you know, things are externally to other people with regard to your family, it always feels like an enclosure inside the house and the things that happen inside the house can really stay inside the house. Domestic abuse can, you know, be, uh, as uh, Jim pointed out, gaslighted. That's a huge component of it. The violence can be something entirely internal, even within the broad scope of like living outside in a giant external world in which all eyes are on you as a family. So maybe that's the back and forth between this giant hotel and this very isolated um, sense in which the film gives you something like that. You know, I'm not entirely sure what to make of this movie. It, it's so fucking wild. You, every film we've done before this, I'm like, oh, that's what that movie's about to me. Like, that's very clearly what I get. And this movie, I just don't, I, I don't have anything. I literally, it's a haze, um, which I guess I'll give it points for. Like, let me just, I'll give it points for that. It's very novel in that sense. Um, I, I, I don't, in fact, I'm not even gonna score this movie. I'm gonna let you guys score this movie. I feel like I would be doing a disservice to score. I know, I know, I know I'm a dick. I know, I know, let me think about it. I know you want my score, let me think about it. Let me, right, so uh, let me. I'll give you my my normal thing is, okay. I recommend the movie. And if, the, if it's a recommend, then it's three stars or above. That's interesting. But, I would definitely recommend The Shining, a absolutely. So it's gotta be three stars or above. Okay, then, yeah. I mean, if that's the if that's how we do this, then yes, I would say yeah. I, I, it's just my thing. I, not, you know, yeah, yeah. Well, cheese sandwiches for you. After this. You have to adopt it. But my normal thing is okay. Do I recommend this movie? Yeah. Okay. Don't don't Kubrick me, man. Don't make me adopt your apparatus <laughs> of yeah. I this is I have a cheese sandwich over here. Yeah. For <laughs> Watch out! I'm gonna give it to you. Uh, yeah. Recommend it. So. Um, do yes, I, I recommend this movie if for any reason, just the cinematics, the I mean, just for the steady cam. The steady cam in this is fantastic. Um, there's certain shots in this movie that I thought were really unique. Um, the acting is fantastic from uh, Jack Nicholson, uh, from Shelley Duvall, uh, the little kid. I, I'm not going to get into it. Uh, but uh, yeah, I, I recommend the movie, but I just don't know. I don't know so, how to score it. I'm just going to leave it at that. I'm just going to go. I could literally go on for like 30 minutes saying how confused this movie made me. Let's just skip to someone else. All I'm going to say is I don't know what to do with this movie at all. Three stars. <laughs> the yes. Steadicam should be fantastic because it was actually run by the, literally the guy who invented the Steadicam. This, this, uh, I can't remember his name, but you know. Oh shit! No way! That's, wow, I didn't know that. Yeah. So I'll, I'll go next. I wholeheartedly recommend this film. Um, <laughs> So I, I, you know, I was if I were to continue to interrogate Noah on his uh, on his feelings about the movie, um, this is yeah, it's one of my favorite films. It's one of uh, it's the only horror film that has has produced physiological effects of fear in me. 
And uh, maybe that's the context I saw it. Maybe I was watching horror movies right that time, Garrett. <laughs> wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Um, so I, uh, I, yeah, I, it really worked for me. I think that um, there's a lot, technically it's flawless um, acting wise. I know uh, there are some people in our chat who disagree with my, my love of Shelley Duvall's performance in this film. All due respect, I, uh, I I think she's fantastic in this movie, and I think Jack Nicholson is, uh, this is one of the best performances of his career. Um, so this movie works for me on a lot of levels. I think it's an interesting horror film because it creates a setting into a character, a character with agency. I think that's really interesting. Some of the themes of domestic violence and domestic abuse really work. Um, I think those are explored really quite well. And uh, the last the last half hour of this is pulse pounding. And so as a result of that, I give it I give it four and a half stars, um, just barely short of a five star rating, simply because of Stephen King's own criticism of this film. Uh, when he said when Jack sh first shows up, he looks like he's going to be the bad guy, and that takes some of the suspense out of the drama. And uh, I think that's a fair criticism. Um, so that dings it slightly, and uh, and brings me to a four and a half instead of a five star film. So, uh, what did you think, Ben? Let's let Garrett close since um, he's uh, this is his favorite uh, horror film. So, what did you think, Ben? Absolutely. Um, well, let's start with the beginning. So I, I did allude to this a little bit uh, toward the beginning of the podcast, but I think some of the opening shots in this movie are absolutely fantastic. I really do. And I'm, I'm not saying this in a glib way. I love the forest setting for a lot of films. Um, it was true for The Witch. Uh, it's true for Hole in the Ground, which we haven't talked about yet, but hopefully we will in the near future. I really enjoyed that. Um, there are a few others that that use this sort of mechanism of of the the woods and being deep in the forest is almost like emblematic of being within some sort of like a chaotic state uh where you have a loss of control um where it sort of like throws back to kind of like a natural order where you are more susceptible to the dangers of the world and of death um i think the shot however whenever they were or if they were following the car throughout that winding little road through the mountains in the woods it was just a little bit dated uh for me just because of the the music and kind of like the text on the screen it felt very 80s and I, obviously that's just because it's from the 80s you know what i mean so it's like a lot of my criticism here comes from i think stuff like that whenever i put it into the context of the time i think the movie is absolutely fantastic um a lot of the shots especially that first shot that you get when danny is having his initial flashback where you see the blood coming from the elevator which of course is shown a second time later in the film but i i i really feel like um if I were to put myself in the time where that was in the theater and I go to see that much like we see the, the reaction with the, the exorcist originally is that it would be incredibly visceral. Um, I, I do think that um, the movies that we see now kind of like desensitize us to stuff like this. So I really don't want to take this out of the cultural context in which it was released. I do think it was an incredibly effective film. Um, and just like we had mentioned earlier, things like Red Rum, the first time you go through that, maybe you don't expect it at first, but then you realize it suddenly, and then it has like that 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 incredibly palpable effect. 
Um, there are a few different things like that throughout the film, so I do want to give it points for that. I mean, it's there. there is definitely an effectiveness there that ties back into fear, even if it's not necessarily what speaks to my fear response as somebody, well, as me today in 2019, right? Um, honestly, like there, there are a lot of elements in this movie that do correspond with some of my favorite selections. It's just that I, I do think that, man, they just, they just like, I, I don't know. It needed to be, it needed to be focused a little bit differently. Like the, the contents of the movie could have been the same. It just, they needed to downplay some things, maybe emphasize other things. Like you were talking about Shelley's acting there. I really think that's, that's absolutely outstanding. Um, I don't want to compare this to Silence of the Lambs too much, where you have somebody who appears on screen for a relatively short period of time, but then carries the film to an Oscar. Like, I don't think it's on, on that degree, but I do think the acting in this film by Jack Nicholson, but also his, his co-actors here, um, really do sort of carry the film for me because that's sort of like that interpersonal element is what stands out to me the most. It's not the ghosts. It's not the supernatural stuff. It's the symbolism with being lost in the woods, in the frozen tundra, and trying to find your way through a labyrinth. It's, it's the relationships that just this make this absolutely fantastic to me but again like i do think it has some flaws like the cinematography was great but again just like the the plot needed to be refocused a little bit so not to not to drag on too much but honestly if i was going to give this movie a score i would uh i would not rate it in cheese sandwiches as the chat has suggested but i might in fact <laughs> give it i don't know like 280 flaky baked breeze with apple pear topping out of 400 or something like that you know yeah so it's good could have been better I would definitely recommend it. Is that a three star uh, cheese rating? I think the three and a half star. <laughs> three and a half. Three and a half cheese sandwiches. I like. I like it a lot. I wish that the. Uh, I I wish I had seen that in the chat before I did my four and a half cheese sandwiches. So okay, that's to me. Um, it's just dawning on me now that uh, you know my one of my standard go tos here is I did we did not do the feminist analysis, which this film definitely can be you know scrutinized under. Um, I, I think it, it shows the female characters surviving and fighting back rather well. Um, but you know, no time to sort of get into that at this point. Um, it, it, yeah, no surprise. Uh, I'm five out of five on this one. As I said, I, I think this this film is damn near perfect. A few minor quibbles. Uh, uh, notwithstanding, uh, you know the 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 big beats hit hard. The 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 tone and the atmosphere keep you on the edge of your seat. The tension ratchets up gradually over time. The pacing is fantastic. The cinematography, the score, the 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 coloring, the acting. Um, I I mean, get, there's always a, a certain degree of subjectivity, and of course, and you guys have, have have all said that there's things which you think it could be improved. But I, you know, I look for it, and I, you know, I, I best I can say is I, I, I respect your opinions but disagree. There's almost nothing I think that can be improved about this film. It is, it's, it's, it, it's, it's fantastic. It's, it, it succeeds. I think in everything it sets out to do, and what it sets out to do is powerful, challenging, difficult. Uh, it is a remarkable accomplishment of filmmaking and uh, of art and a testimony uh, to, to the power of what the moving image can, uh, can accomplish. So uh, I, I can't recommend this film enough to anyone over the age of, say, 10 or 12 uh, at, at that point beyond. You're, 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 you're 
cheating yourself and you're doing a profound disservice, even if you're not a fan of horror films, uh, to, to, to not see this movie. This movie uh, scared my own mother out of the, uh, uh, the, the theaters. And I actually had to sit down with her and make her rewatch it many years later um, uh, because I, I, I said that she owed it to herself. And she, she didn't exactly thank me for that. But, uh, but I felt I, I was doing my, my, my duty in, in, in uh, making her, her sit all the way through it. I actually think everyone under the age of six should watch this movie. I think that would be fantastic. <laughs> I think you gotta be above thirteen. I don't know. That's, uh, didn't you say ten or twelve? That's that's a little. That's about how old I was when I saw it. I think um, you know, and 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 maybe hey, maybe that's got something to do with it. Right? Maybe I was my fragile little childhood mind was so susceptible to be scared. But I watched a lot of horror movies when I was that age, and while I love many of them, there's few of them, almost none that I would give uh, a five star rating to. So so this this one is a standout, absolute standout. Yeah, I think the best way to watch this is to be. Roughly ten have a dislocated shoulder, be eating cheese sandwiches, just the whole nine yards as you as you watch Kubrick's Kubrick's film. Uh, awesome. Um, hey, so I, in case you guys don't know, Jim and Garrett have their own uh, their own YouTube channel where they do film reviews that are outside of horror. It's called Jim and Garrett at the Movies. Who would have thunk it? Jim and Garrett at the Movies. Uh, so check out their channel on YouTube. Subscribe to them. They are severely undersubscribed. Check them out. Um, I think this week they're doing Captain Marvel and Wonder Woman, uh, and I'm sure Jim will throw in a little bit of Shelley Duvall in there. Just, I don't know how that'll work, but you gotta chuck in the feminist bit from this movie into Captain, that's your homework, into Captain Marvel and Wonder Woman. Don't, good luck with that. Yeah, good luck with that. I'm actually gonna watch on my way to work just to see if you can do that. Like that, I, I'm actually really curious. So check out their channel. Um, it, in two weeks, we are doing, so two Sundays from now, we're doing, our next film is Requiem for a Dream. I have never seen Requiem for a Dream. In fact, I knew very little about it until uh, Shara recommended it. So I'm kind of excited because I'm going into it completely blind. I don't even know who's in it. Like I tried to just stay outside. So I, I'm excited to watch that. So two weeks we're doing Requiem for a Dream. Um, at that point, we're creating a new schedule. Um, we don't have, I have a list of films I think we're gonna do. So if you are watching this movie, or this, uh, excuse me, this uh, analysis all the way to the end, like you're one of like eight people on the planet that have done that, let us know what movies you would like us to do reviews of. Um, some have been mentioned in the chat. We've already done some of them, like The Witch, uh, Antichrist. Uh, so check those out on our channel. The ones we're thinking of are, I have them over here to my left, um, we're going to probably do Suspiria, the uh, original versus the remake, the recent remake. That'll probably be the next one after Requiem for a Dream. Uh, we're doing Jim's favorite, which is Raw, uh, which is a film I selected. Uh, the Skin I Live In with Antonio Banderas. Uh, Jacob's Ladder. Uh, we're going to do Annihilation. Uh, Videodrome. And then the one I am really not looking forward to, and of course this is fucking Ben's selection, Martyrs. I cannot, I do not want to watch that movie. It's the same problem I had when he recommended Antichrist. I've, shit has never left me. So we're probably going to do these. I'll put them on the schedule. If there's any other ones you want us to check out uh, or do, uh, leave us a comment. Check out our social media, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Um, and thanks for joining us tonight. We'll see you guys two Sundays from now for a Requ Requiem for a Dream. Take it easy.